Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And our guest today, as we've just been talking, is my dear friend, Anisha Derve. We have known each other since we were nine. <laughs> She is a doctor of oriental medicine, an Ayurvedic practitioner, an Ayur yoga teacher, and meditation instructor with 20 years of experience. She is a 2001 graduate of the Ayurvedic Institute after spending four years training under Dr. Vasant Lad in New Mexico, as well as in his clinic in Pune, India. She co-authored a clinical textbook on acupressure with Dr. Ladd titled Marma Points of Ayurveda and launched her own school, Marma Institute of Ayurvedic Acupressure, to offer trainings for practitioners. Anisha launched one of the first Ayurvedic hospital programs in the U.S. in Cleveland, Ohio. She is also co-director for University of Miami's acupuncture training program for physicians. She practices in Fort Lauderdale and Ohio currently. Visit her website at www.anisha.guru.guru and www www.marmatraining.com. Anisha, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Let's dive right in because what you know is unique, is so unique. This conglomeration of Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine, it really is such an incredible overlay of the sciences and the spirituality and the application of these ancient sciences. You have 20 plus years practicing acupuncture and Ayurveda. What is similar between both systems? What I love about both of these modalities is that they are the two oldest systems of healing on our planet. And I think there's something invaluable about medicine that's been time tested and really going back to ancient wisdom. So both acupuncture and Ayurveda are truly holistic systems of medicine. And I know that word holistic gets thrown around a lot. It's very popular, but Essentially, a holistic system is looking at body, mind, and spirit and looking at all the components of who we are and not isolating them, right? So we are the body, we are the mind, but Western medicine looks at the body and mind as two separate entities versus in a truly holistic model, we see that there's no way to treat the body without affecting the mind or treat the mind without affecting the body. And I think both acupuncture and Ayurveda do this in really powerful ways and also in different ways from each other. So I think the ancient wisdom, the focus on a holistic model, and also the fact that both of them focus on prevention, I think is key. And that's something that we don't really have a lot of awareness in the Western culture about prevention. You know, we might be familiar with the word prevention, but it's not something that's really implemented in Western medicine. Um, the closest I think we have is this new branch called lifestyle medicine, which has maybe evolved in the past five to 10 years or so. And if you look at lifestyle medicine, it focuses on eat well, be nutritious, you know, um, don't smoke and exercise is <laughs> kind of, you know, those are all great things, but that's kind of the extent that Western medicine understands really this idea of prevention. But in the Eastern model, both Ayurveda and acupuncture go into so much detail about what prevention is. And when people really start to understand that and the depth of these medicines, we understand that we really don't have to ever get to this point of being sick, where if we do get sick, there's very efficient remedies of how to get ourselves well again. So I think all of those concepts really 
are what I have seen as kind of the cornerstone of both systems and the, the forte and why I've been so drawn to them is I really want to see long lasting results that are going to break whatever the cycle of imbalance has been. Can you give us an example of like one element of prevention that would be highlighted in Ayurveda or China or TCM traditional Chinese medicine that we don't see in lifestyle medicine? Yeah. So there's a concept of, I'll use a concept, uh, an example with acupuncture, because I essentially will, with every new client I see, give them this understanding of, you know, how many times should they come and receive acupuncture treatment? For example, in ancient China, it was recommended that people come once a season. So they come four times a year to do acupuncture preventively. So it's that juncture between the seasons when our immune system is the most vulnerable, right? As we're transitioning from one weather pattern to another, one climate to another, that's when we tend to all get a cold, right? Or um, get sick is those junctures between the seasons. And so that ancient Chinese way of thinking was if you get an acupuncture treatment at the juncture of those seasons or right before that transition, then you're boosting up your immune system, you're balancing your body and your mind so that you're healthy for that whole season and your body doesn't get worn down. And if you do that preventively, that's going to be one of the best ways to keep yourself healthy. So when I started my practice back 20 years ago, I started telling my clients that to come once a season. But what I found is that with our modern day lifestyle and hectic pace and being overscheduled and not getting enough sleep and not getting enough exercise or not eating the right foods, that even for the healthiest individuals, I found that once a season was not enough. And so the preventive model that I recommend to my clients is once a month for acupuncture treatments and also once a month for getting a regular massage. And so I think if everyone, they did massage once a month and did acupuncture once a month would set themselves up for being healthy for the entire month. And so if any type of imbalance arose, you could address it very quickly without having to wait being broken down for months and months and have whatever condition get exacerbated with time. It's interesting the way you talk about prevention, because when you talk about an acupuncture treatment, you're not necessarily talking about the same points each time. It's the idea that there is a path that you're, you have a goal for health and what health looks like is fluid, that it changes across. There's some similarities, but that it's going to change what your needs are will change across your season, across your age, across your lifespan. And so you're coming for one treatment to kind of get corrected, have your course corrected. Is that right? Absolutely. So who we are is always changing and fluctuating, right? Based on the season and our age and the environment and climate and our mood that day and what we ate that day. You know, there's <laughs> a constant fluctuation, which Ayurveda speaks about a lot as well. And so at any moment in time, we want to treat the person at this moment in time and how their symptoms are presenting now or how their energy is presenting now or their mood is presenting now. So Ayurveda also just has such a long list of options when it comes to prevention. And uh, I think that's maybe the difference between them is Ayurveda offers a lot in terms of daily wellness. So we're not necessarily going to do acupuncture every day, 
we would figure out the right strategy and time frame to get the best results. But Ayurveda is something we can use every day in terms of Ayurveda is promoting diet and lifestyle and yoga and meditation and breath work and just a big toolbox in terms of what to use. And so I think when it comes to prevention, both of these systems have so much to offer individually and so much to offer when you combine them together. And so what are some other differences between Ayurveda and Chinese medicine? Um, Some differences are in terms of their toolbox, you know, so Ayurveda has that toolbox, I said, where it goes into so much detail with diet. In TCM, there is a concept of TCM nutrition, but it doesn't have the same depth as Ayurveda does. So I tend to just focus on that from the Ayurvedic perspective. Um, Lifestyle, I think in terms of talking about daily routine, Ayurveda offers so much wisdom about from the time we wake up in the morning until we go to sleep at night, all of the different self-care practices that we can put into place. So I feel anyone who has not been exposed to that is is really missing out because they're just (laughs) kind of going through their day struggling and not knowing why they're running out of energy or why they're building up frustration or, you know, being an emotional roller coaster, whatever it is. So Ayurveda gives in-depth strategies about our lifestyle and structuring our routine. Um, Yoga, uh, most people know, is the sister science of Ayurveda. And yoga is its own entire system of looking at yoga as a medical model and how we can use it therapeutically to help with insomnia or anxiety or different conditions. But having a daily yoga practice, including some breath work, some meditation work, is invaluable to really work on mental health, but physical health as well. And then Ayurveda has really a very in-depth system of detoxification with panchakarma that involves many different practices and modalities underneath that umbrella of panchakarma as well. So um, Ayurveda just has a powerful, powerful arsenal. And I think it puts a lot of the focus on the individual of how can you empower yourself by living an Ayurvedic lifestyle and, and putting those things into practice. So TCM is a little bit different because you have to go receive acupuncture from an acupuncturist. So it's more of a medical model where there is a patient and a doctor and a relationship that is established between them. But TCM or traditional Chinese medicine has its own set of modalities. And so acupuncture is the most popular, well-known aspect of TCM. Um, But we also have moxibustion, which is heat therapy. We also have our own pharmacopoeia of Chinese herbs that is used extensively. Cupping is starting to become more popular as a technique that massage therapists are now getting trained in, although it really comes from TCM and acupuncturists have been using it for centuries. Um, We have tuning forks, we have twina, which is therapeutic massage, we have gua sha, plum blossoming. So there's many different minor modalities under the big umbrella of TCM that complement acupuncture and go along with it. So both have extensive toolboxes, but Ayurveda offers more for the individual to learn those toolboxes to self-implement and TCM has more modalities that you would have to go to a practitioner to to receive. Mm. They're both five element programs, but they have different elements. They talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I know that can be confusing. So in Ayurveda, we say the five elements are space, which is the first element that's the container for the other elements. So we have space, air, fire, water, and earth. 
And so out of those five elements, TCM doesn't really acknowledge space. It's just taken for granted, I guess, that it exists. Um, but TCM does have fire, water, and earth as three out of its five elements. Um, so in TCM, we talk about fire, earth, water, and also metal and wood. So metal kind of corresponds a little bit to the associations we make of with air in Ayurveda. And wood kind of corresponds a little bit to some of the associations we make with fire in Ayurveda. So it's not ex an exact overlap. Mm -hmm. So even though there's a system, even though there's three elements in common, there's still some differences between the two. How do you specifically integrate them in your practice? When you see clients, how do these work together? So my initial consultation with a client, I will go through a, a very thorough history, usually spend an hour on the history with the client, give them some detailed paperwork, a nine-page history form that they fill out before they come in. We go through that history. And so the evaluation I'm making is kind of similar because both Ayurveda and TCM require extensive detail about a person and evaluating every single system. So after I do that, I'll go through that history, I'll make an evaluation for someone where I explain to them from the Ayurvedic perspective, here's their diagnosis in terms of what are their predominant dosha and what's their doshic imbalance. And from the Ayurvedic perspective, here's a strategy of how we would achieve um, creating doshic balance. And then from the acupuncture perspective, I let them know out of everything we've discussed, what can be treated with acupuncture and what kind of results they could expect. And then I leave it up to the client to decide which modality they're interested in, or if they're interested in both, because I get people coming in usually wanting one specific modality. And so once they get overview a lot of people get sold on the idea of embracing both modalities because I always tell them they're going to get quicker results when they do both. The beauty of acupuncture is we can get very quick results. So even in a one hour session, there is some sort of transformation or change. Most clients are going to experience that in that one hour, whether it's reducing their stress, calming their mind, um, changing their breathing patterns, more energy, um, balancing digestive issues. You know, if someone's bloated or constipated, for example, usually the bloating goes down within a couple minutes of treatment, or if they've been constipated, they'll have a bowel movement right after the treatment. So there's very quick results we can see, regardless of what the symptom might be. Um, Ayurveda is a little bit different. So Ayurveda does require the individual is more motivated and they want long-term results. And so that's the beauty I see of integrating the two together is that acupuncture can get quick results, but I tell people if they're not going to change their diet and their lifestyle and their behavior and patterns, then it's only a matter of time before they will be back in my office to do acupuncture again if the underlying root hasn't been fixed. Mm. And Ayurveda can really address that underlying root and give us the long-term results. So most of my clients long-term get on a program where they're seeing once a season, um, where each season we're doing a dosha checkup and evaluation and figuring out a strategy for balance. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from the acupuncture perspective, they're usually seeing me once a month and focusing on that preventive aspect. Another difference between Ayurveda and TCM that I think is really profound is this idea of working on the physical body versus working on the energetic body. And so a lot of the Ayurvedic 
modalities and the tools that we use are geared towards working on the physical body. And we actually have a term for this that we use in yogic anatomy, where we talk about the concept of the five koshas or the five sheets. So these five sheets, the grossest level, the densest level is the physical body, which we call the andamaya kosha. And so the whole realm of Ayurveda focuses on this realm of Annamaya Kosha and treating the physical body through detox techniques, through herbs, through yoga, through diet. And TCM is a little bit different because with acupuncture, our focus is not on the physical body. So our focus, we say, is on the level of Pranamaya Kosha, which is that sheath or energetic body that's nourished by prana. And so at the level of pranamaya kosha, as we work on the energetic body, we say that any type of imbalance has to occur at the level of pranamaya kosha first before it translates into physical signs and symptoms. And the next kosha that's a little bit more subtle than pranamaya kosha is the the mental bodies, manamaya kosha. And so we say at the level of pranamaya kosha, it is the bridge between the physical body and the mind. And so if we really work at the energetic level, at the energetic body with acupuncture, that's why we can treat physical symptoms and mental symptoms because of that bridge between them. So there's a different level of subtlety when you're working with the energetic body that's different in, in acupuncture versus all of these other physical modalities that are directly working on the body. Fascinating. I mean, we know this so innately in our lives. We and we can see, we think of our lives as being a physical experience. But when you think about what is most valuable to you, it's really our relationships and our experiences in the world, not necessarily like where our body is or what is happening in our body. So that's an amazing way that our medicine can, that there's medical systems, ancient medical systems that actually took account much more than our physical body. Absolutely. And I think just on a human level that we all innately know this about our bodies as well, that we recognize when there's maybe some preliminary stress that's building in our system or some anxiety that's building in our system. And we know that if we don't do anything about it, it it will keep building and building right until the anxiety becomes palpitations until it becomes a panic attack until you know it maybe leads to cardiovascular issues down down the road but there is a step-by-step process of how our symptoms start very mildly and then get exacerbated into a severe condition and what TCM is saying is before we have those mild symptoms, there's some type of energetic imbalance that's occurring first. And what Ayurveda would say is before we diagnose or or observe mild symptoms, there's some type of doshic imbalance that's occurring first. So that's really the wisdom of both of these systems that if you can get to the level of prevention and keeping your doshas balanced or keeping yourself energetically balanced, then the mild symptoms never even originate. We have research in our Western world of research, body of research, that talks about how being bullied in fifth grade is more impactful on the physiology than breaking a leg. So we can see years down the line, the impact from one versus the other. It's when you ask people to remember those experiences that the cortisol and the stress hormones that are released from being bullied are way more dramatic than the stress hormones released from breaking a leg. So we know that the lasting impact is tremendous from what happens essentially in our energetic bodies, in our mind. Absolutely. And it's wonderful to see that research is catching up with the Eastern wisdom to 
to prove that and yes. to document that and to show that so that the Western mind can start to believe it more. And your specialty is really Ayurvedic marma therapy. What is that? Can you describe what this is? Absolutely. So in Ayurveda, we talk about a whole system of energy points, which we call the marma points. And there are 117 marma points that are located all over the body. And essentially each marma or each energy point we say is this gateway of consciousness. It's this place where our prana, our vitality, our breath is really localized at these points. And so at these points, we have the potential to affect the pranic flow or energy flow throughout our entire system. So there is a little bit of a difference between the marma energy points in Ayurveda versus the TCM acupoints in Chinese medicine. So the Ayurvedic system is much smaller with the 117 marma points. And we say that these points are connected to inner channels, which we call the nadis. And so these nadis are these very subtle channels that cannot be mapped out onto the surface of the body. If you were to anatomically dissect someone, you would not be able to find these nadis. They're very, very subtle energy channels. But each of the marma points is connected to these subtle channels. And that's why a marma point on one part of the body might affect another part of the body. And it might make no sense to someone on the surface. But if you understand the connection of the pranic nadis, it makes perfect sense. So for example, we have Shanka Marma that's at the temple. And this Shanka Marma is connected to acid reflux, lowering acid reflux and helping with any type of intense fiery pitta digestive imbalances. So you would wonder why does this point at the temple help with that? But there is a pranic nadi from the temple that goes straight to the digestive tract and to the stomach and establishes that really strong connection between them. So in the TCM system, we have many more points. So we have a minimum of 360 main points on the body and many extra points in addition to that. So we differentiate in TCM, the main points are the ones that are located on meridian pathways. And so we have 14 main meridian pathways that run along the surface of the body. And all of these main acupoints are mapped out onto those energy pathways. The extra points in TCM are not necessarily located on one of the main meridians, but we just have an extensive network of those extra points as well. So that would be kind of the main difference, the number of points and the channel system, um, different channel system that they are connected to. That's so fascinating that there are, that what is the same, you know, part of the theme of this show really is kind of like, what's the same and what are the differences in these ancient medical systems? And so we can see another similarity also beyond just the emphasis on prevention, beyond the emphasis on the daily assessment and treatment that the treatment needs to change. So for instance, in conventional medicine, we would treat diabetes. We have a same kind of arsenal of treatments, you know, we have a certain number of things that we would do. And for a certain level, everybody's going to get insulin. And now yes, those types of insulin or the schedule of insulin might differ a little bit. But it's really one main focus. Whereas what we're talking about in these ancient systems is that the focus is prevention, the treatment is based on where how the person presents in this moment today, and that that can change. And that there's both these systems of channels, but that the channels, the number the the layout, the spatial alignment, and those things are all very different. That's so fascinating. Absolutely. And I think really, if you think about really the oldest 
form of healing out there, right? We have so many sophisticated, medicine has become so sophisticated now with so much technology. But if you really go back to ancient human history, it was just touch, right? Just touching someone's body and being able to feel where there's tightness and feel where there's pain and and be able to alleviate it. So really the origins of, of Marma therapy comes from this ancient concept of massage and touch and the power of that and that we can learn really simple ways to just touch the body effectively and know exactly which points to touch to create a certain effect. Are we trying to get someone energized? Are we trying to calm them down? Are we trying to help someone be able to sleep? Are we trying to help someone be able to digest? Um, Is there an emotion that someone's trapped in constantly feeling anger or recovering from trauma? And these points are these like magical portals in the body where we really get to access our deepest emotions. We get to access our, our breathing pattern changing as we touch these points. And it's amazing to see people have these emotional releases or these cathartic experiences or someone will say, yeah, I just had a memory of this trauma I experienced 20 years ago, and I haven't thought about it until now. But that's what the power of touch evokes is it allows this healing response, it triggers our body's innate healing intelligence, it triggers this healing response, it lets things that have been buried deep within us come to the surface. Mm. So that example that you said about being bullied when you're a child and the trauma that that causes being so powerful, it's because we store that trauma in our physical cells and in our tissue, but we also store that trauma at an energetic level. And so at some point, healing is inevitable for all of us and whatever we have endured, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, that is just the nature of who we are is we're constantly evolving to greater and greater levels of healing. So if there is a trauma that we have suffered, at some point, it's going to come out to the surface, right? We can try to take, you know, all of these Western pharmaceutical medications to push our anxiety away or suppress our depression. But at some point, we have to face the reality of whatever that emotion really is. So uh, I'll share a quick example of a a friend of mine who was going through her divorce. And she said that there was no way for her to get through her divorce, the pain, emotional pain of her divorce without medication. So she was taking an anti-anxiety med and anti-depression medication and was on that for a long time. And I had gone through my divorce and gone through a lot of emotional pain myself many years prior to her. And she said to me, I don't know how you got through your divorce without medication. And my response to her is, I don't know how you're getting through your divorce without meditation. (laughs) 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 That was so essential to face my pain and not try to mask it with Uh any because I knew that I had to face it in that moment. Mm -hmm. And this is not to discount that there are definite times where medication is essential for some people for their mental health and well-being. And it's it's such an individual case-by-case pace case-by-case basis to see if it's appropriate for you and what circumstances are. So I'm not trying to be anti-taking certain medications, but I'm just a big believer in getting to the roots of our healing and our health and facing our emotions and doing whatever work it is that we need to do. And so kind of coming back to the marma points is these marma points are these gateways to really get us to be in touch with our body, get in touch with our breath, get in touch with our emotions, and really bring out this very deep level of healing. 
we've talked in other shows about how, you know, the idea is that with any kind of healing is you do have to go through it. You can't skip over it. And there may be moments where you need to pause, put a pause on the work so that you can take care of your kids or keep your job or there's components or let the glare die down a little bit, but that you really do have to go through it. And we've both sat in classes with Dr. Ladd, who says, you know, when you go to the heart of the matter, one half inch or one quarter inch behind that deepest darkness is where that true light resides. And if you get stopped by that darkness, then you never find that light or it can be much more challenging, take lots more time. And so as you're talking about the innate ability of marmas to be part of our daily life, just like talking about how Ayurveda is part of our daily life, I can't help but feel a little bit more and more heartbroken over how much COVID has interrupted our ability to touch each other. Because some of our innate ability to manage our trauma by contact with other people, closeness with other people has really been, you know, we now find ourselves repelled by other people on trails, on sidewalks and grocery stores, the contact, even just the closeness of another human being that so many of us experience in a daily life, let alone contact with friends and loved ones. We were just talking about how we haven't seen our close families, you know, our moms, and it'll be over a year soon. And so those touches that I think are supposed to kind of like zap little bits of our trauma consistently, kind of like a trauma prevention, trauma treatment on a daily basis, though that contact with people we love has really been er interrupted. What are your thoughts about kind of how COVID has changed our ability to inadvertently hit our marma points? So that's a great, a great insight. I like the way that you, you describe that because I think on the one hand, we are all missing that touch and that contact. But in another way, I think it's made us appreciate it so much more mm -hmm. and value when we do have that contact with our loved ones, value it in a way that maybe we haven't been able to appreciate before. So I think there's there's a time and place for everything. And I think even with COVID, there's been so much global healing and so many lessons that I think we're learning as a human family and as a planet about what's important and what needs to be prioritized, like the way Mother Earth has been able to heal as we, you know, take a break from all these airlines, you know, jutting around and people slowing down and appreciating life more in a different way. So I think COVID has come with its own lessons about for each one of us is probably different. But I think some of the bigger lessons have been about slowing down and going within and taking the time to heal and the importance of prevention, right with people with other morbidities and other factors being at higher risk and higher exposure. And so I think it's, it's given maybe everyone this sense of maybe I do need to focus on prevention and maybe I do need to boost my immunity and what are other ways that I can, can do that. Um, when it comes to the Marma points, I haven't been doing the Marma work in my practice this year and I do miss that. But one of the things I teach all of my clients that I emphasize a lot is daily self-care. So we still have the opportunity to do a little self-Marma care protocol every day. I usually tell my students or clients five minutes a day is just a great way to stimulate some of the facial points, for example, um, and work on opening the sinuses or preventing headaches or releasing different emotions or just to kind of feel good or feel well, you know, just a feeling of rejuvenation that that self-care protocol can, can create. So there is a difference between not being able to do that on clients right now because of COVID restrictions, but being able to emphasize it in our own 
our own self-care. And do how would people access that information from you about how to learn self-care protocols? So I do have some self-care little demonstration videos that I share on my Instagram account. So anyone can follow me at Anisha Nirvani is spelled A-N-I-S-H-A-N-I-R-V-A-N-I. So on there, I'm going to be adding more footage of just simple, you know, one or two minute protocols that anyone can do to start to learn the points and what some of those points are are good for and, and what effect that they can create. And then I've also created an online um, Marma training school that anybody can learn the basic theory and concepts of Marma therapy, the energetics of all 117 points, their locations, how to use them in treatment, um, all the different ways we treat the points. So that's a 45 hour online course uh, that anybody can access at my website, marmatraining.com. And just to back up a bit, can you talk a little bit more? I feel like we have a sense of the Marma points that they exist, that they're around the body, but do they fall into different classifications? Yes, we can classify the points uh, because it is overwhelming as a student trying to learn them. <laughs> 17 I know everyone gets a little daunted by that, but usually I offer these seven-day live trainings and my students are really surprised at the end of seven days how confident they feel that they've learned all these Sanskrit names of points and that they can locate them and they know how to treat them. And um, so we classify them based on the different body areas right? So points that are located on the face or points on the arms and hands or points on the back. So we can classify it that way. We also can classify it according to the five elements. So points related to earth, for example, are going to be points more uh, near the feet uh, versus points related to space and air are going to be more close to the head and neck area. We also classify points by the three doshas, whether they're more vatha, pitta, or kapha in nature. Um, we can classify points connected to different organs or connected to different channels. And then one of the most important classifications is by degrees of vitality. So all of the marma points are connected to prana, this flow of vitality, but some marma points have more vitality at them. So if you were to injure that marma point, it could cause more damage to the body, for example, versus a point that doesn't have as much vitality could be injured and you won't have that many repercussions. Can you give us an example of a point that has a lot of vitality to it? Yeah. So for example, we have some points um, on the scalp, on the midline of the scalp, mm -hmm. and we have um, Brahmarandra, Mridhani, and Shivarandra. And these three points, for example, if you were to damage them, for example, playing football, it'd be very easy to get a concussion. So we know that wearing a helmet is a good way to try to protect because there we are trying to protect the scalp, but we're also protecting these vital marma points mm -hmm. that are there. Another example would be like Kanta Marma is here at the throat. So in a lot of martial arts traditions, for example, there are certain areas of the body where you are not allowed to strike your opponent at the throat because that could cause very intense damage to be hit there. So a lot of the history of Marma points did originally evolve with the martial arts tradition of learning which points could create more injury um, or could be used to injure an opponent and which marma points could help with the recovery and the healing process. So that is part of the, the evolution and the history of these points as well. I remember after 
studying these Mormon points in school, I was either a few months or maybe a year later, I was walking up a low set of stairs and bumped my head right on those points on the top of the head. And I remember thinking, I'm dying, I'm dying. And then I remember thinking, oh, wait, I just hit that Marma point. It will be okay. Like, I'm not dying. But I were, I distinctly remember suddenly being able to connect to the fact that, you know, I had hit my head right in that particular top spot. And mm-hmm. then there is that Marma point there. Absolutely. And that's very strong feeling of uh, this was the end. <laughs> was- There's also really powerful Marma points to increase vitality. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite points that I teach um, all my students on day one is Oshta Marma, which is right between the nose and the upper lip. Mm-hmm. So you can just kind of for self care, use your thumb and just press on this point here. And usually you want to close your eyes, take a few deep breaths. But this Oshta Marma sends oxygen immediately to the brain. So it's mm. a revitalizing. So if someone's feeling faint, if they're dizzy, if they're lightheaded, if they're going to lose consciousness, this is a really powerful point to to help with that. So it, I actually tell my students in class, if you're starting to feel sleepy, please press your <laughs> revitalize you so you can listen, continue to listen to me talking. <laughs> but it, it does create this burst of, of vitality. And one of the best stories about that point, one of my acupuncture teachers had shared with us in school. So she was an American acupuncturist and she was traveling in China. And she said this Chinese woman fainted on the sidewalk. So she went over, you know, she went to go press this Oshta Marma to help revitalize her. And the Chinese woman woke up and my teacher said to her, you're okay. I'm an American acupuncturist. And she said, the lady fainted again. (laughs) (laughs) The Chinese woman was so shocked. So that they were just, you know, American <laughs> acupuncture a long ago before acupuncture was popular in America or people knew about it. This lady didn't even know acupuncture existed here. So she said the second time she pressed that point again and she, <laughs> and she came too. Um, but it was hilarious. So you know, as a student, we will never forget the power of this point to revitalize. <laughs> bring them to to consciousness. And I had the experience myself of being in a hospital with a family member who was sick. And I saw the nurse talking to my family member and starting to look really faint. And I could tell she was about to pass out. (laughs) I ran across the room just in time as she was like falling down. Oh, caught her head before her head hit the floor. And then I pressed this Oshta Marma on her and it like brought revitalized her right away. Wow. It was great. The point really works. (laughs) Okay. So if one point can be so impactful, we know, we all know listening to the, if you are listening to the show, then you know that conventional medicine has some problems (laughs) and that part of our mission at the Center for Healing Neurology is that we're trying to correct those. So what do you see? Like, how can we, you've been part I know I'm stumbling on my words, but I'm so excited about the potential for essentially what you know to be brought into modern medicine. And it certainly is in pockets, but how do we do this in mass? Everybody, most people have faces and thumbs. And so we have the things that we need. We have these tools. When we talk about tools in our toolkit, 
We have the physical tools to make these changes. What we need is the knowledge. And absolutely, your Marma School is a bastion of information about this. Your marmatraining.com, people can find out more about your programs. But what do you think the potential is that we could integrate this broad scale into communities that lack healthcare providers, say, or lack funding for expensive imaging and surgeries, or even ongoing medications, thinking about how many people in this pandemic have really struggled to and have had to make decisions about whether they pay for medications or food. And if there was another way, what do you think the broad implications of this knowledge being out there might be? I think the implications are huge, because once again, we come to this place of switching from the Western model of something's broken, and let's fix it. And let's go to someone else to fix it right? Versus the Eastern approach is we're not looking at trying to fix something. We're looking at how to heal something organically through a process where sometimes it can involve a healer and a practitioner that we're going to, but the emphasis is always comes back to the individual and our motivation, our intention, our desire to heal. So even if I see someone, for example, who's had chronic back pain for 20 years, one of the first questions I ask them is, do you want to heal this pain? Which the client might respond, of course, I want to heal the pain. That's why I'm here. But the deeper implication of that answer is that a lot of us are holding on to our pain or holding on to our conditions or our diagnosis as a crutch for a long time, because we don't know who am I without the Parkinson's or who am I without ADD? You know, that becomes our label, our definition of who, who we are. So being able to get past those labels to real genuine healing really takes a lot of reflection on the part of the individual. I might be able to get rid of that person's back pain, but it does also involve their cooperation if they really want to do it. Um, this is one of the things I always mention to clients who want to quit smoking, and they come to me for acupuncture for smoking cessation. And I tell them it's the it's only going to work if you actually want to quit. So I, I try to ascertain whether they're genuinely there because they want to quit or their spouse has sent them or someone else has has sent them there. And I let them know flat out, it's, it's not going to work if you don't have that belief and that motivation yourself. So to get back to your question in terms of the implications, I think there's two implications here in terms of healthcare and home care. And I want to kind of differentiate between those two. So when it comes to healthcare, if you take a concept of Ayurveda and TCM with their giant toolboxes and how much they can do to treat body, mind, and spirit, the implication is enormous because we would shift the whole model of healthcare to instead of being sick care to really being healthcare and wellness and prevention. So it seems like there's a desire to move in that direction, but Western medicine doesn't necessarily know how to get there. But Eastern medicine already has the answers and has the experience that it can jump in and, and provide that. When it comes to marma therapy, one of the reasons I've loved specializing in it is because there is a crossover between Ayurveda and TCM because energy points are common to both systems. And roughly about two thirds of the marma points correlate exactly to TCM acupoints. So that really helps bridge the gap between the two systems. What's lovely about Marma therapy is that as I've been teaching it, I started my school um, two or three 
years ago now. And what I love is that the students who want to learn this system come from so many different backgrounds. So of course, massage therapists or any type of body workers, if they learn these points, it's going to enhance the massage so much more. Um, but acupuncturists, we are really not trained in acupressure in any of the TCM schools. It is one of the eight branches of TCM, but it's a branch that's totally been lost. And that's one of my missions is to kind of help revive that branch of acupressure within the TCM world to get acupuncturists to learn those hands-on techniques. But I also see Ayurvedic body workers, physicians uh, who are doing facials, who can learn mm. some facial marma points, PTs and OTs that are working so much with the joints and the muscles. And if they go to a specific point, they can really enhance whatever technique they're doing so much more to mobilize a joint or pain relief, whatever they're trying to work on. Um, chiropractors, midwives. I love working with midwives because I think it's so essential for um, prenatal healthcare for women to be supported with the hands-on touch, to learn some of these points, how they can work on abdominal marma points throughout their pregnancy. And even during the time of delivery, seeing doulas and midwives learn simple marma protocols to just help women stay totally relaxed during that experience and help them with postnatal healthcare, work on infants um, with just relaxation techniques. So the possibilities are endless, I think, when it comes to healthcare. And I think marma therapy is this excellent bridge because it's teaching people about Ayurveda and acupuncture, bringing those two worlds together and giving them the power of touch. Yeah. So the second part of my answer in terms of home care is that we can look at this from the perspective of all these different healthcare modalities and practitioners and how they can take this work out into their respective fields. But I've also had a number of students over the years that are mothers who just want to learn how to work on their children. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so vital and important that we get that loving, nurturing touch from our parents, and we can alleviate really simple conditions through that power of touch. So all of the children that I've seen in my practice in the past 20 years, I do the marma work on them, but I also train their parents in how to do some of these marma protocols. So the children are receiving these marma treatments every day from their parents, in addition to coming to see me at whatever frequency I've told them to come visit me. But I think that's really, I think one of the biggest impacts is if we could get every mother to get trained and every father who is willing um, to get trained in learning marma therapy and being able to work on their children when they have a headache and alleviate it with touch or open up their sinuses or treat their stomach pain, you know, in addition to giving them a little belly rub or teaching them how to boost their immune system or get rid of pain. It's just the possibilities are endless. And so I think if children are growing up learning that they can correct imbalances when they arise and they don't have to get exacerbated. And if they can learn, oh, I can work with my breath. I can do a meditation technique. I can do a yoga pose. I can stimulate some marma points. If children are learning that at a young level, that allows them to become healthy adults. And that's really kind of, I think, the roots of where we need to go in terms of real family healthcare and bringing this, this wisdom home.
What an insightful distinction between healthcare and home care. So for our practitioners to know how to deliver these services for patients that they're seeing who come with ills, but then also how to delineate that it's really important that the root is really to have it at home and in your daily life. And that is the distinction also, I think, between how we practice medicine in our daily life. So the idea that you're not sick, you're not sick. Oh, now you're really sick. The idea that we're going to make those moment by moment adjustments for children in their diet, their activity, their level, focus on, help them to focus on their breath, help their minds to be quiet, not to give them necessarily another toy or another screen, but to really work through it and to be with them in their pain, to teach them how to be with each other through any kind of pain or discomfort, and then have these part of the toolkit, like I was saying, with their faces, with their hands, with your faces, with your hands, with everything that we've got, to be able to be there for our kids in a way that our touch can be therapeutic and be healing for what their moment-to-moment ills are before you actually need to step out of the home for any other care. Oh, that's such an insightful distinction. Absolutely. And I think even going beyond the toolkit, you know, we can talk about all these modalities and all these techniques and all these different tools, but essentially both Ayurveda and TCM believe that ultimately it comes down to our body's own innate healing intelligence. Mm-hmm. And so all of these other modalities or techniques can stimulate that, but it essentially comes down to our bodies are wired to know how to heal. That healing is always going to be inevitable. And it's really, we get in our own way of preventing that that healing, right? And one of my favorite Ayurvedic terms is prajna parada, because it's so fun to say. <laughs> Uh, The very concept is these crimes against intelligence. And so Ayurveda says that we commit these crimes against our intelligence if we don't eat when we're hungry, if we don't drink when we're thirsty, if we don't rest when we're tired, if we don't sleep when we're sleepy, which all seems so basic. But if you look at modern society, we're violating these crimes all the time. Mm. You know, it's very rare to meet people who are eating well and exercising properly and getting enough sleep and taking time for self-care. You know, that is our goal um, to get there, but most people are so far away from, from those goals. But ultimately it comes down to our respecting ourself and our healing intelligence and knowing that all of these tools are here for us to access that. And I think marmotherapy in particular does it in such a powerful way because we can, we can do it with one simple touch, with one simple breath. So I want to go back one minute um, to something that a point that you've made a few times throughout the show, which I'm pretty much in love with. And that's why I want to emphasize it, which is that you say healing is inevitable. And the question I want to ask is like, how do you know that? Like so many of our listeners and our patients have experienced such severe illness and such severe pain or disability. And sometimes what I tell patients is the the easiest example to understand it is that if you have an amputation, healing doesn't mean that the leg grows back. Um, We become whole in our new reality. So there is a piece of us that's outside of our anything our physical body can potentially throw at us. But I would like to know from your perspective, why do you say like, how can you be so sure that healing is inevitable, that that's the direction we're going? What does that mean? And how do you know that? That's a beautiful question. So I'll differentiate between the Western model, once again, of something's broken and let's fix it, right? Maybe you've got a rotator cuff tear and you have uh, shoulder surgery to help repair that joint. So that fix of that surgery might just be the beginning of your healing journey, right? And so the concept of healing is something that's much deeper and more organic 
and really involves body, mind, heart, and spirit. So it involves every dimension of our being versus the fix it might just be fix the physical body, repair the joint, you know, something superficial like that. And so when I say healing is is inevitable, it's really this concept of nature, right? Ayurveda is all about understanding nature and our connection to nature and how do we live our lives in harmony with nature instead of going against the flow of it. And so these crimes against intelligence, for example, are us going against our own nature, going against our, our own biorhythm, going against our instincts, going against our emotions. We do that all of the time. And so when we look at the way nature is, there's always going to be an action and a reaction that we see. And the same thing is true with our body, with our mind. Every emotion is going to have its own cascade of reactions that it creates. And so when I say healing is inevitable, it's because healing follows that path of nature. There's no way for us to ever really block nature. um, And there's no way for us to block our healing. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to suppress our emotions, and we don't want to face them right now, we have that choice. But at some point, those emotions will will resurface in one form another or another, maybe they surface as more intense emotions, or maybe it starts to surface as a physical ailment or condition, it's always going to manifest in some way. And so what I've seen throughout all of my years of practice is that the physical body actually knows how to respond and heal much faster than the mind is actually much more difficult to treat and the mind is much more resistant. And so that that differentiation has given me such an appreciation of the complexity of who we are in terms of our mind, our, our thinking patterns, our emotional patterns, and how that affects us. I'll share a story of a client of mine a number of years ago, who was actually referred to me by his Kundalini yoga teacher. And he was this middle-aged man in his 50s, had never done yoga before, had really never done any type of healing before. But he did two or three Kundalini yoga classes, and he just burst into tears and was hysterical so that the, the teacher had to actually remove him from the classroom. Oh, no. <laughs> like the burst of mm-hmm. emotions was so intense. So she referred him to me, and she said, I can't invite him to my yoga class until his emotions can calm down a little bit because he can't really get into the next pose or do the next breathing technique and he's distracting all the other students so this gentleman came to see me and it was the first time he was doing acupuncture and doing marmot therapy and he had the same reaction on my treatment table he just burst into tears and such intense emotions and what i discovered is that this man for 50 plus years had continuously suppressed his emotions and never let himself feel any of it. Mm. So when he was finally in this situation of doing yoga or doing um, treatments, this gateway was open, this floodgate of emotions just came out and there was no way to control them or regulate them or quiet them. (laughs) Like they were just (laughs) outpouring. And I felt so much compassion for this man that he had learned this survival technique of suppressing the emotions. But here's an example of why healing is inevitable is it had to come out at some point, whether <laughs> yes. it was at the table or whether it was a yoga class, it was inevitable that it was going to have to come out in, in one way or, or another. Mm-hmm. So he did do well with treatment and he was allowed to enter the yoga classroom. <laughs> and uh-huh. that's 
point. Um, so there's a happy ending to that story. But I think this is true for, for all of us, you know, whether we're medical practitioners and we're working with clients and we want to do that deeper healing um, for our clients or for us individually, right? All of us have our own complex histories and traumas and emotions and challenges and struggles. And so for each one of us, healing is inevitable in terms of we're always evolving to the next place in our understanding, the next place in our spiritual growth, the next place in taking care of our body. And so as we move through life, yes, our physical body is aging, but we're able to start to tap into this wellspring of self-love and self-knowledge and self-care, which Ayurveda and and acupuncture gives us a doorway to be able to access that in a really beautiful and profound way. I'll believe you. Healing is inevitable. It's true. You can't stop nature. That's why when we watch movies like Legend with um, Will Smith and he's alone and the apocalypse has happened, then it means trees take over New York City. Like nature has a march that is unstoppable. Absolutely. And so does the human spirit. You know, I feel that's mm -hmm. really our human spirit will can survive anything and not just survive can really thrive any type yeah. of trauma and any type of experience because it's just the beauty of who we are i was listening to an ayurvedic doctor talk about this age that we're in from the hindu perspective the kali yuga and it's kali is the goddess of darkness and death and so it is a challenging age that we live in and one of the things he started as he was describing it he started to giggle and he was saying, but you know, this one thing is that when you're in the Sat Yuga, the age of truth, then all the animals and the birds and all the people, everybody only thinks good thoughts. And it's very difficult to rise above because there's nothing to rise from. And so in this age of the Kali Yuga, in this age of challenge and um, in this age that is so hard, COVID being even more, uh, being another layer of something we all have that much more opportunity to rise above in our inner spirit, regardless of what happens with our bodies. So thank you. Absolutely. And I think that's the blessing of COVID as well. You know, I think um, just this concept of disease and illness versus health, I, I really have come to a place in my own healing and working with clients of not looking at disease or symptoms as the enemy, but the symptoms are really part of the healing process to yeah. bring our attention to our body or to what's not working or, or what's not right. And I think that when we start to shift our perspective and see every symptom as part of the healing and every illness as part of the healing process and the blessing and even look at COVID as this opportunity for global healing for us to shift in such a powerful way to, that every person on the planet has been affected by this mm -hmm. and is going through this shared experience, I think it's an opportunity for a deeper healing than we've ever experienced before. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add? Okay. This is so wonderful. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was so fun to share with your audience and I hope it inspires everyone to just look at their own self-healing and self-growth. Well, thank you for listening today with Dr. Anisha Dervey. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can get more information from and about Anisha at anisha.guru.com or at her marmatraining.com website. You can also get more information about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends, and we welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. 
We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.